Please turn back in your Bibles to the passage of Scripture from which we took our Scripture reading, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. And we will read again verses 36 to 39, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, reading again verses 36 to 39. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cup to which our Lord refers here in verse 39 this cup that he prays will pass from him. He, a little later, identifies John 18, verse 11, as the cup the Father has given me. Our Saviour's Father has put a cup in his hands, and it is his will that his Son should drink it. Now it is not of course a literal cup. This is a metaphor, an image, picture language for an experience through which he is about to pass. And obviously it is not a pleasant one. King David in Psalm 16 speaks about the Lord having assigned him his cup. And in Psalm 23, he speaks about his cup overflowing. And in both of these Psalms, the reference is to blessing. David's cup makes him glad, but not this cup. Drinking this cup is going to mean suffering for the Lord Jesus. Suffering so intense that the very thought of it is overwhelming. Matthew tells us that when he entered the garden, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Mark that he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Sore amazed. You notice too what he says to 
those whom he takes with him to the place of prayer. Verse 38, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Our Lord in the garden of Gethsemane feels as if the sorrow that is pressing down on him is crushing the very life out of him. And that is just in anticipation of the cup. The mere prospect of it almost more than he can bear. So what is in it? This cup that the Father is placing in his hands. Well, the Apostle John gives to us a very helpful pointer to the answer. A little later on, the Lord Jesus is going to say something to the Apostle Peter when Peter offers resistance to his arrest. Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? It is the language of resolve. He himself is going to offer no resistance. He's going to place himself in his enemy's hands, knowing all to which it will lead. The trial, the condemnation, the crucifixion, with all of the sufferings that that will entail, all those things foreshadowed in that portion of Psalm 22 that we've just been singing. He is going to go through with it. Why? because it is the will of God that he should. This is the cup that the Father has placed in his hands, and he is determined to drink it. Well, it is around this cup that we're going to gather our thoughts as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. And here is what we see as we picture this cup being put into our Saviour's hands. We see him recoiling from it. That's the first thing. But not refusing it. That's the second thing. And then afterwards, emptying it. And as we look at these things, we're going to apply what we see to the cup that God sometimes puts into our hands. Our cup. Your cup. And sometimes our cup is like David's cup. In Psalm 23, it's overflowing. Our lives are full of joy-giving blessings. But at other times, it's a very different cup that the Father puts into our hands. A cup that resembles the cup that is being put here into the hands of the Lord Jesus, at least in this respect. The thought of drinking it is painful indeed. And so too, the drinking itself between the believer 
and the Savior, there is fellowship at such times. Fellowship of shared experience. And that is why Gethsemane, for all its uniqueness, is such a helpful place to visit. And I pray that it will be helpful for us to visit Gethsemane afresh this morning. So let's think about our Lord. What do we see as we picture this cup being put into his hands? Well, first of all, we see him recoiling from it. Verse 39. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. So overwhelming is the thought of drinking this cup. The suffering that he anticipates so extreme that he pleads with the Lord to be spared. If it be possible. If there is another way if Calvary's goal can be achieved without Calvary's suffering, let this cup pass from me. Now you appreciate that there is a point beyond which we simply cannot go in our endeavours to understand this language if it be possible. Because we recognize and affirm that all the way through our Savior's earthly life, He and the Father have been working to a plan. A plan agreed on in eternity. A plan of which the Old Testament prophets had written. A plan foreshadowed in all the Levitical offerings. A plan that would involve the very suffering from which he is recoiling and from which he is pleading to be spared. There are depths in that that we simply cannot fathom. But there is something that we can do, at least a little. And that is to try and enter sympathetically into why our Lord should so shrink back from the sufferings of Calvary, and in particular from what represents the climax of those sufferings, the awful experience of being forsaken of God. It is helpful to remember that it is the very nature of sin to separate. George H. Morrison, minister in Glasgow, the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, preached a sermon once entitled The Loneliness of Sin. It was based on those words in John 13 concerning Judas Iscariot 
he went immediately out, and it was night. And Dr. Morrison, in his sermon, speaks about three separations for which sin is responsible. How sin separates us from our ideal, the man or the woman that you so wish that you were. And how sin separates man from man. We know all about that. And above all and worst of all, how sin separates from God. And that it is what it is going to do to the Lord Jesus. He simply cannot be the sin bearer without the sin that he is bearing separating him from God without experiencing in some way or other the loss of God as God in wrath and revulsion toward the sin that he is bearing turns away from him. Do you understand at least a little why that should have filled our Saviour's heart with dread, that separation, that the very thought of it should be so crushing it was necessary for the Father to send an angel from heaven to strengthen him. Our Saviour's Father was his life. They were one. And all through the years of his earthly pilgrimage, there had been the profoundest love between them. He had never been without God. And all the way through this intimate togetherness of Father and Son, and of course, lying back of that, the eternity in which they had been together. And in the course of his earthly life, a moment by moment, reality over which not even a flicker of a shadow had ever been, his inexpressible joy every day that he lived to have communion with his Father in heaven. Those of you who are believers, you know something of the pleasantness of walking with God. We would not give up our walk with God for anything. How much more the pleasantness of walking with God on the part of the Son in whom there was no sin between whom and God there was the most precious and delightful fellowship and now he's facing the loss of God more than that he's facing the very opposite he's about to become an object of the father's wrath I think of those words that one day he himself will pronounce depart from me he cursed. 
he is just about to hear, as it were, those very words ringing in his own ears. Little wonder that he should recoil from it. That having known the heights of fellowship with God, his heart should shrink from plumbing the depths of God's abandonment. Now here is what follows from that, at least one thing that follows. And that is the profoundest sympathy on our Saviour's part with all of the heart shrinkings with which his people, his beloved people, are so familiar. The dismay that we feel at the Father's cup for us. Now, it is never the case, and we will come to this at the end, that the cup that the Father gives to us has in it what was in Christ's cup. That cup has been emptied. But our own can be bitter enough. And not just the drinking of it, the very anticipation of it. You have been, have you not, just where our Lord Jesus was in Gethsemane, recoiling from the cup and praying that if it is possible, that cup might pass from you. Perhaps that's where you are this morning. The thought of what is or what might be the Father's will for you, almost unendurable, certainly so painful, some very difficult duty that you would so much rather not have to face some sorrow looming that you would so much love to pass, some loss that you anticipate that you would so much rather not be, some physical condition perhaps that you fear is about to worsen. You know the kind of things to which I'm referring. They haven't happened yet, but they are appearing. They're on the horizon. You see them coming. Or you fear that they are coming. The unwelcome, even dreaded will of God for you. And you find yourself, it's perhaps, as I say, where you are this very morning, doing what the Lord Jesus did, praying that if possible this cup might pass from you that you might not have to do or to endure what you see might so well be the Father's will for you. Is that where you are this morning? Let me assure you that you have your Saviour's deepest sympathy because it's where he has been you may be assured that that sympathy is no mere fellow feeling. 
but a sympathy rather that will prompt you to be, prompt him to be your strength. A sympathy that will bring him very near to you so that in the strength that flows into you by virtue of your union with him you may be equal to all that God has ordained for you. So there's the first thing. As we picture this cup being put into our Saviour's hand, we see him recoiling from it. But secondly, for all that he recoils from it, he does not refuse it. Verse 39. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 44. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. You see the picture that is being given to us. Recoiling from it, yes. But not refusing it. We're touching here on what was our Saviour's uppermost concern. Not his own will, not his own wishes, but the will, the wishes of his Father. That was the thing that was of supreme importance to the Lord Jesus. What the Father wants. It's all bound up with what the Saviour was or with what the Saviour came to be. The servant of the Lord. Remember how it is put in Psalm 40. I have come to do your will, O my God. It is our proper place as human beings to live in submission to God. And he has entered into that fully. He has embraced it completely. It's how our salvation is to be accomplished. Through the obedience of the servant of the Lord. And here, at the climax of it all, it is the deciding factor. What matters most? The passing of this cup or the doing of the Father's will, the doing of the Father's will, not as I will, but as you will. Your will be done. The cup that the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? There's determination, firm resolve. He recoils from it but he does not refuse it. And the great question that faces us is this. What will bring us to be of Christ's mind? 
to submit in the same way to the cup that the Father places in our hands. We acknowledge the authority of God. Unquestionably, He is God's. And it is our duty to do what He commands and to submit to what He ordains and to do so trustfully and uncomplainingly. To say, as we bring our own petitions to Him, Your will be done, not what I want, Father, but what You want. But the question is still there, what will help us to do that? To be reconciled to his Father's will when we know, when we fear that it will be so opposite to what we wish. Well, I think there are some things that we can say. Things that we can imagine our Lord saying which are so very helpful to us as we endeavour to be reconciled to our cup. Say, first of all, my Father loves me. Who is this Son into whose hands this cup of suffering is being placed? The Son whom the Father loves There is no contradiction whatsoever between the contents of the cup and the love that is in the Father's heart. You cannot argue from the bitterness of the cup to a Father who does not love or who is acting unlovingly. Father's bitter cup and the Father's loving heart perfectly compatible with each other. And so in your case, and so in mine, whatever hard thing is approaching, whatever sorrow you so wish to be spared, don't question the Father's heart. It is as loving, it is as incapable of acting cruelly towards his beloved children as it was in the case of his own beloved son, Jesus. Say, my father loves me. And then say this, my father will be with me. That was Jesus' comfort as he anticipated the cross, as he thought about the disciples leaving him all alone, he would not be alone. His Father would be with him. And that hope was not a vain hope. He wasn't alone. Even amid the darkness of forsakenness. Unseen. Unfelt. Father was nevertheless there. Underneath were the everlasting arms that had borne him up all the way through. Hebrews tells us that it was through the eternal spirit that he offered himself unblemished to God. 
The God who in one sense turned away from him, separated from him on account of the sin that he was bearing in another sense. There, upholding him, carrying him through until the whole ordeal was passed. And so it will be with you. And so it will be with me. As you think about what may be ahead for you, as you think about what will be ahead for you, say to yourself, my Father will be with me. He will no more sever the connection between himself and me than he did in the case of his beloved Son. He will no more cease to uphold me than he upheld him. You may fear that he has gone. And there will be times when you will feel that he has gone. And in his inscrutable providence he may withhold a sense of his presence and of his love. And that's when we need to come back to the unchanging word of God and the unchanging character of God. Our God has bound himself as to himself and assures us that there is nothing that can separate us from his love to us in Christ Jesus. And then there's a third thing that you can say. My father has the best of reasons for this. The best of reasons. Wasn't that how it was with the Lord Jesus? Your will be done. What was the Father's will? That he should give his life as a ransom for many. That he should make his soul an offering for sin. That he should be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, the whole Calvary ordeal. That was the Father's will. And what an end the Father had in view one altogether worthy of God. The eternal salvation of a multitude that no one can number from every nation, tribe, people and tongue and in that great redemptive work, his own everlasting glory. And you may argue similarly in your own case true. God has nothing remotely as big in view in the things that he ordains for you or for me. But he has the best of reasons. Reasons that are just as worthy of himself. We may not see it, but we can be sure of it. As a writer of a bygone day puts it, by the very anguish we may suffer, we may measure the greatness of the end to be wrought by it and the intensity of the joy with which God will compensate us. The best of reasons. Say it with faith. 
So we're in the Garden of Gethsemane this morning. And we're picturing this cup being put into our Saviour's hands by his own Heavenly Father. What do we see? We see him recoiling from it. That's the first thing. But not refusing it. That's the second. And then thirdly, we see this. We see him afterwards emptying it. Emptying it. He prays, Your will be done. And when it is settled in his mind what is the will of God, there is no turning him. The cup that the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? The crisis of decision is over. He's going to go through with it. And he does. On and on and on he goes. Deeper and deeper into the darkness and the pain. Until at last he emerges into the light. With those great cries. It is finished. Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. That bitter cup. Love. Drank it up. And did so. Until it was empty. And that has profound implications for our own cup. It tells us for one thing that this cup, our Saviour's cup, will never, never be our cup. And I'm speaking to the many of you here who are believers. There is a cup of wrath that men will drink. A cup that they will never drain. There is an everlasting punishment into which men will go. A separation from God that will never end. Hear that. But not for the believer. Not for you if you are a believer. Whatever God puts into your cup, it will never be what was put into the Saviour's cup. No, that cup has been drained. The cup of God's wrath. For us, that cup is empty. It's one of God's best blessings for those who come to Jesus for salvation. What you will not have to endure. A cup that you will not have to drink. Because our Lord has drunk it for you. Anne Ross cousin. Death and the curse were in our cup. O Christ, t'was full for thee. But thou hast drained the last dark drop is empty now for me. 
But there is another implication of our Saviour's work for our own cup. (coughs) What will fill it by and by? We've been thinking this morning about what is in it now or what will be in it. And it can be very bitter. Sometimes the cup that the Father puts to his children's lips is full of very great suffering, as you so very well know. But it won't be so always. It won't be so forever. That is the great thing about Christ emptying this cup. It means that our own cup one day will be full of joy bringing blessing. David, Psalm 23 his cup overflowing how it will be with us one day how it will be with us eternally think about it your loving heavenly father placing into your hand a full and overflowing cup of holy joy for you to drink to his glory forever and ever and ever Think about it as you take up in a moment or two the cup of remembrance. Say to yourself, this cup, so full of suffering for him, so that one day my cup, my cup might be full and running over perfect, glorious joy. And oh, if there are any of you here this morning unconverted, this is the cup of blessing that is offered to you. You dash it from your lips and there will be another cup of which you will be compelled to drink the cup of God's wrath forever and ever. The madness of it, dashing from your lips this cup of blessing so freely offered to you by a loving Father in His Son's precious name. You take that cup of blessing that is offered to you in and through the Lord Jesus. That to all eternity may be no cup of wrath and sorrow and woe, but one of endless God-glorifying joy. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are humbled before the Saviour, accepting this cup that he might drink it for us, 
so that for us there would be a cup of blessing to be everlastingly enjoyed. Grant, gracious God, that as we eat the bread that speaks of his body given for us and as we drink the cup that speaks of his sufferings unto death, it may be with deepest thankfulness that we praise you for the blessing that through him will come so freely to us. Hear us and help us as we continue on in our worship, as we sing and as we come in just a little to the table itself. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. going to sing the Sing Psalms version of Psalm 23 and you will find this on page 28 of the Psalter the Sing Psalms version of Psalm 23 the Lord is my shepherd no want shall I know verse 5 in the sight of my enemies a table you spread the oil of rejoicing you pour on my head my cup overflows and I'm graciously fed. Sing Psalms Psalm 23 The Lord is my shepherd no want shall I know The Lord is my shepherd no want shall I
as we examine ourselves as we ought and as we put to ourselves the question is it right for me to be at this table think about this on whom or on what are your eyes set yourself and your own works or on Christ and Christ alone here is a beautiful verse from Horatius Bonner telling us on whom his eyes were set upon a life I have not lived upon a death I did not die another's life another's death I stake my whole eternity is that where you are this morning is it Christ and Christ alone to whom you are looking for righteousness for salvation well then that settles the question the table is for you you may come to it with confidence with full assurance of your Saviour's welcome please take your psalters and turn to Psalm 118 in the Scottish Psalter Psalm 118 and we're going to sing from verses from verse 15 onwards and we will continue to sing until the elders have placed the elements on the table in dwellings of the righteous has heard the melody of joy and health the Lord's right hand doth ever valiantly Psalm 118 verses 15 and following in dwellings of the righteous in dwellings of the Oh uh-huh. 
Come to us. 